Galatians chapter 6. This morning, we're going to be concluding our series through the book of Galatians. We've been taking it verse by verse all the way from Galatians chapter 1, and it's wonderful to see the great big theme and the great big message of this book as it's come back to us week after week. Really, what the book of Galatians is, is focused on is how a person can be right and stay right with God. And what I think is interesting about that question is, first of all, to many people today, maybe even to some of you, that's a fairly irrelevant question. Because you believe that what's really important are so many other issues in your life. You say, I can't balance my checkbook. I've got a relationship in my life that's on the rocks. Or I've got this difficulty in this area and that difficulty in another area. And it just doesn't seem like God bothers you all that much at all. So getting right with God doesn't seem to be uh, an issue with much urgency to it. But what's important to realize is that the Bible teaches us that the most important thing we can do in our lives is get right and stay right in our relationship with God. And it's really for two reasons. First of all, if that isn't settled, all the other success you may have in your life really doesn't mean very much, does it? I mean, you could uh, have all those areas in your life all together and have everything great, and every day that you live upon this earth have a wonderful experience. The only problem with that is that every day you live upon this earth isn't every day you're ever going to live. And you could be the most successful, well-adjusted, perfect person ever to make their way to hell. And so there's something eternal that we have to consider uh, when we think of these questions. The other matter of it is, is that the Bible says that if we'll put God first in our lives, he'll take care of everything else. Jesus said that if you seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, all these other things will be added unto us. And so it's important for us to say that even though you may be sitting here this morning and you have a problem in one area of your life or in another area or in many areas of your life, it's still important for us to come back to the Word of God and say, how do I get right and walk right before God? And that's what Paul has been concerning himself all throughout this letter to the Galatians. Now he's going to wrap it up with several interesting and and, and sort of summarizing comments here. Galatians chapter 6, we're going to begin... Verse 11 together, he, re- he writes, See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. And that's kind of an interesting thing for Paul to write there, isn't it? You, well, what's he mean by this? Well, Paul is adding a postscript to his letter here. It was the common practice in the ancient world that if somebody was going to write a letter, they didn't actually write it out with their own hand. They dictated it to a a scribe or to a secretary who would write out the letter. And this is what Paul did with virtually every one of his letters. He did not actually put his, his pen to the parchment and write it out. He dictated it. But now, here at the end, Paul goes over and he taps the scribe on his shoulder. And he says, can I have that pen for a moment? I want to add my own comments at the end with my own hand. And so as Paul begins to write that out at verse 11, look at what he writes. He says, see with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. He goes, look at how big my printing is here. Now you might ask, why is Paul making such a big deal about the large letters that he's written with his own hand? Well, of course, this is one of those little tidbits in the Bible that 
Bible teachers and commentators love to speculate on endlessly about. I heard one commentator write in his book, he says, well, I believe that the reason why Paul wrote large letters was because he thought that the Galatians were so spiritually immature that they should be written to as if they were children. And so Paul writes out big block letters as if he's writing to children. He goes, here, these are the large letters for you spiritual babies. I don't think that's it. Other people say, and this may have some relevance to it, they say, well, Paul had such poor eyesight that when he was writing the letters, he had to make them really big so that he could see the letters well. And this is sort of a commentary on his poor eyesight. So he says, see, look at what large letters I write to you. Well, that's a possibility, but I don't really think so. I think what Paul's simply doing is emphasizing. You see, the idea here is that he's just making the letters large for emphasis. He's letting the bold, large characters reflect the energy and the determination of his soul and how important it is. I mean, if he was writing this on a computer today, he'd make the font really big, he'd make it in bold face, and he'd underline it a couple times. But he didn't have all those tools back then, so what did he do? Well, he just made the letters big. They said, see what large letters I write to you with my own hands. So we could expect that what follows after this, written by Paul's own hand, is going to be important. He's going to say some important things, and he does. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these try to compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Paul here, in these two verses, written with his own hand in big letters for special emphasis, is speaking to the motives of the legalistic Christians in the cities of Galatia which opposed him. Well, might I say it's always a tricky thing to speak to the motives of anybody. I mean, it's a hard thing to look at somebody's life or to look at their actions and say, I know what the motives of their heart are. Yet Paul does it because their motives are so evident that he needs to make sure that the Galatians understand what those motives are. And so he writes these two verses to reflect the motives of the legalists among the Galatians. First of all, he says their motive is to, did you see that in verse 12? To make a good showing in the flesh. Do you understand what Paul means by that? Basically, he means these Galatians want to give a good impression of themselves. They want to promote themselves, glorify themselves. They want themselves to be seen as prominent and upstanding and right before you, That's why they're trying to compel certain Gentile Christians among the Galatians to become circumcised. They work to bring the Galatian Christians from a Gentile background under the law of Moses, under circumcision, because it would be a good showing for them, but it would be a good showing in the flesh. You could just see the kind of discussions they would have amongst themselves. Well, do you know how many Gentiles I brought under the law of Moses this week? Say, well, I brought five. And the other guy would say, well, that's nothing. I brought eight Gentiles under the law of Moses. They received circumcision, everything. And everybody would go, oh, wow, you're so spiritual. Look at what you've done. They wanted a good showing, but it was in the flesh. You see, these legalists 
pretended to be motivated out of concern for the ones that they tried to bring under the law. But Paul saw through this deception, and he saw that their motive was really selfish, simply desiring the honor and the glory of a good showing in the flesh. They wanted to bring these other Christians under the law of Moses that it would be sort of a bad, sort of a medal, sort of a, an achievement for them. I want you to notice something about this, about how this sometimes is an attitude that carries on in the hearts and the minds of Christians today. Oftentimes you notice it in evangelism, where Christians will evangelize other people not out of a sincere love and a desire for the people that they're evangelizing, but so that they can make a good showing in the flesh, so that they can have a merit badge or some kind of achievement. Really, what they're looking to do is just kind of carve another notch in their Bible, right? Or you see it there on the side of the uh, fighter jet. It has flags of the enemy of all the planes that had shot down. Well, they just want to put another flag on their jet, don't they? Another notch in their Bible. They don't really care that much about the person that they're trying to reach. No. It's just, hey, just come to Christ and, and say the sinner's prayer, and I could put another notch in my Bible. I could put another mark on my report. That's really not the right kind of motivation for serving other people, is it? God would point us to another way, to, to love people. To not do things out of selfish motives for people. No, no. But to do it out of loving motives. Might I say too that there's a very important word in verse 12. It says there, As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these try to compel you to be circumcised. That word compel is very important. You see my friends, it doesn't matter if a Gentile wants to get circumcised. Great. If a Gentile wants to keep a kosher diet, wonderful, go ahead. If a Gentile wants to keep some aspect of the Mosaic law, wonderful, let him do it. Just don't compel him. Just don't make him do it. Just don't put him in a situation where he's supposed to think that the only way he can be right with God is by coming under the law of Moses, because the way we're right with God is by what Jesus Christ has done for us, not by what we do under the law of Moses. So that was one of their motives in verse 12, so that they would glory in the flesh. But notice here also in verse 12, he points to another motive. He says, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. Well, here's another issue. Why would uh, these Christians seek to spread their legalistic doctrines? So that they would not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. You see, when you preach to people that the way they come to God is by their own works, you have erased the cross of Jesus. You don't need to preach the cross. You're preaching people need to come to God by their own works, not by what Jesus did on the cross. And when you de-emphasize the place of the cross in the message, well, you're not going to suffer so much persecution. I could see this on three different fronts. First of all, there would be other legalistic Christians who would be offended at saying the only way we're right before God is by the cross, right? So let's erase the cross, and then we don't offend them. They don't persecute us anymore. Or how about this? How about some of your own Jewish friends and relatives? They don't like that you're preaching Jesus and the cross. They just want you to preach a bland morality, and let's come to God through the law of Moses. And so if you stop preaching the cross, well, then they won't persecute you anymore. 
Then there's also the aspect of the Roman government. You know, the Roman government recognized the Jewish religion as a lawful religion. And as long as Christianity was seen to be just a branch of Judaism, it was excused as well. But once Christianity established itself as a way to come to God apart from the law of Moses, then you were almost inviting the Romans to persecute you. And for the sake of avoiding persecution, many people would not preach the cross. They wouldn't proclaim Jesus Christ. Like that sometimes in our world today, isn't it? Sometimes people won't make a stand, a bold stand for Jesus Christ, because they're afraid of persecution. Sometimes they'll just say something general about God, about the good Lord, about the man upstairs, but they won't say Jesus Christ because they know that may alienate some people and they don't want that persecution. Maybe you've been faced with that. Maybe there's been a situation in your life where you had the opportunity to make a stand for Jesus Christ, but you didn't because you were afraid. And the fear of persecution kept you from making a stand for Jesus Christ. Now, I agree that persecution is never fun. And there are times when we face very painful persecution. Of course, when you think about it in comparison to persecution other people suffer, the persecution we suffer seems pretty petty, doesn't it? I was driving down the freeway, somebody might say, and there I have Christian bumper stickers on my car. And somebody drove by and honked their horn at me and made an obscene gesture at me. I'm so persecuted for the cause of Christ. Or there I was around the water cooler at work, and people were making fun of Christians. And they knew I was one. And a guy said, well, I think Christians are really dumb. And there I was, persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ. Well, it doesn't feel good to face that kind of criticism or that kind of mocking or that kind of of social uh, putting out, right? It doesn't feel good. It's really nothing compared to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world right now who are literally being tortured and dying for the cause of Jesus Christ. You know, the next time we're afraid to face a little bit of mocking, a little bit of, 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 you know, joking at, a, a little bit of putting away because we're Christians, we should do well to remember that in parts of the world right now, Christians are dying for their faith. Christians are being tortured. Christians are being killed because they name the name of Jesus Christ. And I think if we're thinking through this clearly, it should make us feel just a little bit embarrassed. I mean, are we going to push away the cross of Jesus? We're not going to so closely identify ourselves with Jesus Christ because we're afraid to be mocked a little bit? Well, that was the heart of these men. And to avoid this persecution, they would not preach the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, enough about the motives of Paul's opponents. Now in verse 14, Paul's going to talk about his own motives. And this is beautiful. He says, verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. 
First of all, in verse 14, Paul tells us what he glories in. There's a lot of glory in our world today. There's the glory of being famous. There you are, people know who you are, they ask for your autograph, you get your picture taken different places. There's the glory of being famous. Then there's the glory of being wealthy. Right, you're wealthy, you can pay for all kinds of things, you're a person of status and influence because of your wealth. That's some glory in this world. Then again, there's the glory of having just a place of status and influence over others, the the glory of power, the glory of authority. There's a lot of glory in this world. And Paul said, all of that is meaningless to me. The only glory I care about, look at it there in verse 14, is the glory of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we read those words today in the 21st century, and it, it sounds kind of spiritual, you know, something that anybody might say or pray. What we really need to lock into is just how strange it was for Paul to say this. In the thinking of the ancient world, of the people that Paul was writing to at the very time, there were hardly two words that did not belong together more than glory and cross. There was nothing glorious about the cross at all. I mean, what would you think if somebody came to you today and they said, I glory in the electric chair. I glory in the gas chamber. I glory in the hangman's noose. You'd think they're strange, but you know what Paul said about glorying in the cross is even more extreme. Because the cross was not just a method of execution. It was the most shameful, humiliating, degradating method of execution that you could ever imagine. To glory in the cross just almost doesn't make any sense. Did you know that in polite Roman society, you wouldn't even say the word cross? It was thought to be so offensive that you wouldn't even say the word. And when judges pronounced sentences in official Roman courts, they wouldn't even mention the cross if they were condemning a person to crucifixion. They would use a Latin phrase that was a euphemism. And what the Latin phrase literally translates as, that they would say, hang him on the unlucky tree. That's quite a way to describe the cross, isn't it? The unlucky tree. It's because they knew that that word cross was so offensive You shouldn't even say it in polite society. What does Paul say? He says, listen, not only am I going to say the word cross, I'm going to glory in it. People would stand back and scratch their head and say, Paul, what do you mean? How can you glory in the cross? I can see you glorying in your, your good showing in the flesh. I can see you glorying in success and fame and wealth and status. But Paul says, no, none of those things mean anything to me. I glory in the cross. Now let's understand what Paul does not mean by this. He doesn't mean that he takes glory in the particular piece of wood to which Jesus was nailed. That particular piece of wood is of no special importance. Although at times Christians acting out of superstition have thought that it was. In the 300s A.D., 
the Roman emperor Constantine sent his mother, Helena, uh, on a mission to the Holy Land. And she went to Jerusalem, and she tried to discover the true cross of Christ. So she asked around, and I'm sure there were a lot of people willing to give her the answer she wanted to hear for the right amount of money. And according to legend, she found out where the true cross was, buried under you know, many feet of, of dirt and rubble. And as she prayed, God miraculously levitated the cross out of the dirt. And she took it back to Rome with her. And little pieces and slivers and splinters from the cross were distributed to all sorts of churches, thousands of churches all over Europe. So that maybe in their altar, at some place, they could say, we've got a sliver of the true cross. What nonsense. Martin Luther said that in his day, if you were to take all the slivers of the true cross that are scattered around the churches, you'd have enough to build a ship. (laughs) Friends, there's nothing special in and of itself of that piece of wood that Jesus was crucified on. No, when, when he talks about the cross, he's referring to the glorious doctrine, the glorious truth that we are saved, that we're right before God on the basis of what Jesus did for us on that cross. It's what Jesus did on the cross that's important. He stood in the place of guilty sinners. There's Jesus, sinless in himself, perfect. And yet he bore the guilt of sin, the the, the, the guilt and the punishment that I deserved. He prayed to the Father and said, Father, put that guilt on me. Put that punishment on me. Don't put it on David. Don't put it on, on every other person. He said, no, put the guilt on me. And as the Father put the guilt, put the, the, the penalty on Jesus, God the Father punished God the Son on the cross for my sin. And that's what Paul preached. And Paul preached, that's what saves me. That's what makes me right before God. Not whatever I've done for him. No, what I've done for him pales in comparison to what he did for me on the cross. No, that's why he says in verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Paul thinks of something else about that cross. There's that cross. And not only was Jesus crucified on that cross, but Paul's perhaps thinking of that hill on Calvary. And there wasn't just one cross up there, was it? There was three. So, okay, there's Jesus dying for my sins. There's the cross of Christ in the middle. But wait, there's a cross on the side. And what's on that cross? Look at it there, verse 14. By whom the world has been crucified to me. The world, it's dead to me. It's hanging up on the cross. Now, what's the world in the sense that Paul means it here? Well, Paul means world in the sense of not the global earth, not not even the mass of humanity. I mean, God loves the mass of humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. No. What he means by the world there is, is the mass of sinful humanity united in rebellion against God. He means the spirit of the age, the tenor of the times. Friends, you know that, that our culture has an atmosphere. It has, a, it has an environment. And just ask yourself the question, does that environment tend to lead you closer to God or further from him? Well, you know the answer to that, don't you? I mean, if we follow the flow of our culture, it'll lead us away from God. It won't lead us to him. Well, that flow of our culture, that's the world. And Paul says, you know what? That's dead. 
It's up on the cross. There it is. It's hanging up there. And you know what? If it's dead up on the cross, it doesn't have any power over me anymore, right? Who's afraid over something of a cross? It's on the cross. It has no power over me. And there it is. There's Jesus in the center. There's the world crucified to me up there on on one side. But wait, there's a third cross. And what's up on that third cross? Look at it there, verse 14. And I to the world. Well, who's up over there on the other side? Well, you are. You're dead to the world. The world's dead to you, but you're dead to the world. You've been crucified to it. In other words, the world doesn't have that allure, the the fame, the status, the flow of the culture. It just doesn't have the same grip on you anymore because you're dead to the world. So Paul says, listen, those legalists, they may want to make a good showing in the flesh. They may want the status and the attention and the accolades in the world. Paul says, I don't care about it at all. The world's dead to me. I'm dead to the world. Isn't it wonderful that Paul and the world could agree together on one thing? They didn't like each other very much. Paul says, listen, I, I condemn the world and the world condemns me. And so Paul lays it all out here in verse 14. The world's on the cross. I'm on the cross. But most notably, Jesus is on the cross. And then he goes on and applies the point in verse 15 where he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Listen, what Jesus did on the cross so far surpasses anything we can do. What does it matter if you put yourself under the Mosaic law? And it just doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. If you want to say, okay, the law tells me I should be circumcised, I'll be circumcised. Great, go ahead. Doesn't change anything before God. You say, well, I don't want to go under the Mosaic law in that way. I'm not going to do it. Well, fine. It doesn't make you more or less or anything before God. What really matters? Look at it, verse 15. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. That's what matters. Being a new creation. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what matters. Being a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now that's a work that God does in you, isn't it? You yield your life to him and he makes you a new creation. Friends, that's what we need in our lives. We need to be new creatures. That's where the Christian life all begins. It's it's not in turning over a new leaf. It's not in deciding you're going to be a better person. It's saying, God, make me a new creation. Jesus used the terminology saying, being born again. You have a life, but you need a new life. You need to be born again. You were born once. By the way, you had very little to do with that first birth, did you? You're pretty much a spectator at that event. (laughs) Same way with your second birth. It's a work that God does in you. Yes, you come to him by faith. But you're born once. You need to be born again. You need to be a new creation. You're a creation right now, but you need to be a new creation. Paul makes it very, very plain. That's what matters in the Christian life. Friends, are you getting this point? What really matters in the Christian life is the great work that Jesus Christ has done for you. What you do for him is secondary. It's important, but it's secondary. What's really important is what Jesus has done for you. Do you think more about what you should do for Jesus or about what he's done for you? Now, you should think about both. God does not want you to be unconcerned about what you should do for Jesus, but you should think more about what Jesus has done for you. 
because it's a lot greater than what we will ever do for him. Now look at verse 16 here. He says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. I love this. Paul started out the book of Galatians with a curse, right? He cursed anybody who preached a different doctrine, a different gospel. And now, after cursing in the first chapter, now he's blessing in the last chapter. He goes, walk according to this rule, walk according to this way, and God's blessing will be upon you. You'll be one of the people of God, a true descendant of Abraham by faith. Now in verse 17, we come to one of the more interesting little verses, not just of the book, but I say of the whole New Testament. Look at verse 17. Paul says, From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul writes as someone who suffered for Jesus and who bears those marks on his body. And so having suffered so, he can say, from now on, let no one trouble me. Now, what marks is Paul talking about? There's a mystical tradition within Christianity that refers to these things as the stigmata. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It speaks of supposed wounds that appear on a person's body in identification with the sufferings of Christ. In other words, a person is so mystically identified with Jesus that they begin to bleed from wounds in their hands. Or they begin to bleed from wounds in their feet. They they begin to bleed from a wound in their side because they're identifying with the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Apparently, phenomenon such as this has happened and it's been documented and some people take it as a great miracle or a display of faith. I would like to say that, speaking biblically, it's just completely irrelevant. I can't say it's true or not true. How can you explain or not explain phenomena? If somebody has a bloody sore on their palm and they say that it's a stigmata, it's a miraculous thing, how can you prove or how can you disprove it? I just want to say it just doesn't matter. I mean, I believe that it could be something from God. Perhaps it could very well be a deception from the devil. The whole thing is, what does it matter? Did you know that a person could have the most spectacular bloody wounds where the wounds of Jesus were? There they are, you see it, and the, the blood is dripping from their hands and from their feet and from the wound in the side. But if they don't trust in what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross, they're going to perish eternally. I don't care what kind of show is going on in their body. They need to trust in what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. It just doesn't matter. And oftentimes, you know how these things work. Instead of being a spur to godliness, they're a huge distraction and and an entrance into superstition and an ungodly mysticism. No, Paul isn't talking about stigmata here. Do you know what he's talking about? the scars on his body from the kind of sufferings he endured for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm a pastor, I'm a minister, I'm a servant of God in those ways. I don't even have a scar from a paper cut from all the studying I do. But Paul did. Keep your finger here in Galatians chapter 6. Turn back a few pages. You want to see the scars of Paul? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It actually just to be a few pages back in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 23. You want to see the scars of Paul? Now, I love this section of 2 Corinthians. I call this section Paul's resume. 
right? You're applying for a job, and Paul's trying to establish his credentials as an apostle. And so he says, well, here, you want to know my credentials as an apostle? Well, here's my resume, all right? Verse 23, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all of the churches. Now, who wants to be an apostle? Here's your job description right here. You know, this was the whole problem in the Corinthian church. In their worldly thinking, they thought of the position of apostles being some kind of super spiritual, like everybody should bow down, you all, it's a position of status and glory and power. And Paul says, this is what it means to be an apostle. And look at the scars in my body. Look at what I've gone through. I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus in my body. Now, I can understand why Paul says in Galatians 6, uh, verse 17 there, or excuse me, verse yes, 17, where he says, let no man trouble me. I mean, here, somebody comes to Paul, and they want to go on and on about some, you know, false doctrine, or they're trying to persuade Paul about coming under the Mosaic Law, and they're just droning on and on about it, and Paul, you know, he's kind of, he's just sort of zoning out, because he's heard this a million times before, and his mind goes back. He's describing one of those situations there in 2 Corinthians. Did you see that where he says he spent a day and a night out in the open sea? There's Paul traveling along by ship. And all of a sudden, out on the open sea, the the ship starts sinking. It's breaking up. It's going down. And he and the other passengers, they have to, there's no lifeboats. Come on, this is the ancient world. They're clinging to wreckage. You don't even have a proper life jacket, even one of those, those seat cushions, which wouldn't save you anyway, but he doesn't even have one of those. Every time Paul's on his ship, it seemed to wreck. It's funny, he's traveling all over the place, and it's going down, and there he is for a whole day and a whole night out on the open sea, clinging to wreckage. Paul's hearing this guy drone on and on about this false doctrine he's trying to persuade him to. He's thinking back to that. There he is, a day and a night out in the open sea. He's remembering Man, it's like a shark going to come up and get me any minute now? Am I ever going to be found? Am I going to die of thirst? Am I going to be able to hang on to this wreckage? What's going to happen to me out here? Lord, I just committed to you. And then this guy's droning on and on, and Paul wants to just look at the guy and say, don't trouble me. I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus on my body. I think in today's vernacular, Paul would say something like this, You're bringing this to me? After what I've been through? Listen, don't even go there. I bear on my marks, I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. After what I've been through, you you think I'm intimidated by this stuff? You think there's petty squabbling among the Galatians? This bothers me? Let no man trouble me. I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Don't even go there. I don't want to hear it. I've been through tougher things, and, and, and I went through them, and I wasn't shaken. 
what I'm going through right now, it's not going to shake me either. That's the kind of boldness, that's the kind of strength, that's the kind of attitude that Paul had. But no, no, there's another aspect to this too. When he talks about the marks of the Lord Jesus, he's also referring to an ancient practice that they would do towards slaves and soldiers. And what they would do is they would brand certain slaves or certain soldiers, the slaves it was involuntary, the the soldiers they did it of their own free will, but they would brand them with an insignia. For the slave, they would brand them with the insignia of their master. For the soldier, they would brand them with the insignia of their general. And Paul says, I'm a marked man. I'm a branded man. These scars, these injuries, these wounds... They mark me as a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't ashamed of them. You see, today, the the highly decorated soldier stand up and he looks so great in his uniform and his chest is full of medals. You wonder how the guy can even stand up straight, you know, because he's got so many medals on his chest. Paul would look at this scar and say, see this scar? Yeah, that happened when I was under a pile of rocks when they tried to stone me. God preserved my life. That's like a medal. And this on my back, that's like a medal. I rejoice in those things. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. These identify me as a follower of Jesus. Somebody looked at your life and they looked for identifying marks. Would it lead them back to the Lord Jesus Christ? Or maybe the identifying marks of your life would point them to something else. Maybe not things that that on the surface appear entirely bad, but they're not Jesus. When you looked at Paul, you said, this is a man marked by Jesus. This is a marked man. Would to God that every man, every woman in this room here this morning, that we would be indelibly marked, branded, tattooed by Jesus Christ. And that people would notice it. People would see it and say, There's someone who's different. And notice how Paul ends the letter here, verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. I think that's the solution for it all. Not law-keeping, not legalism, not trying to earn your own way before God. No, no, instead, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's battled, he's fought, he's gone into it with the Galatians, he's argued the point the best he can, but at the end of it all, he entrusts them, he entrusts the issue to God's great grace. That's what it comes down for us. Will you let the grace of God change your life? Will you let yourself be branded by the grace of God? God wants to do that work in your life here, right now, this morning. There's something he's speaking to your heart about that you need to give up for him, that you need to go forward for him, that you need to do for him. Then do it out of his grace. Let the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let everything you do in your walk be out of that favor, out of that goodness, out of that grace the Lord God bestows upon you. He'll give it to you if you ask him. So let's ask him together right now to pour out that grace upon us. Lord Jesus, we stand before you this morning and in full and vital recognition that we can't do it on our own. Lord, we need, we need your grace. So, Lord, would you send forth your grace to be with our spirit right now? I pray, Lord, for a person here this morning, they've been trusting in themselves. 
They've been trusting in their own church attendance. They've been trusting on, on getting brownie points or merit badges before you in heaven. Lord, let them wipe all that away and trust in your grace. Pray for the person here this morning, Lord. They're more branded by the world than they are by Jesus Christ. The identifying marks on their life, they're marks from the world, not from Jesus, Lord. Do a transformation in those lives. Help us to die to the world and the world to be dead to us and help us to be marked by Jesus. Set us, Lord, on a higher plane, reaching for a higher prize, to know you, to love you, to be marked by Jesus Christ. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.